thankful to these guys that they let me play bass every once in a while. I really love uh, worshiping through music. And uh, actually, I really thought that's what God was calling me into as far as full-time ministry. Um, I really thought I was going to be a music pastor. I, I love I love music. Um, but God um, opened me up with experiences and spoke to me through his word. And I, we've had a winding road to be here, and I'm so grateful to be here. Uh, but the band lets me play with them like once a year. So <laughs> I'm enjoying my, my one day a year. <laughs> That uh the the video that comes up um, as you're as as we're switching over, um, there it plays a couple different reasons. One is that you know, we want to be intentional that prayer is not just a transition time for for our church. That really, as we pray together as a congregation, that we really want to be praying together, not just closing our eyes so the set can change. <laughs> so the video gives us a little bit of uh, built-in time, just where it's not awkward on stage. But the video has a little bit of meaning. So in Galatians, we're seeing so far. Paul reaching out to this church and saying, hey, you need to be saved by faith and faith alone and Christ alone and not through works. It's not through works that you're saved. Uh, So we see a lot of justification by faith. That's a theme that runs throughout. But I believe that what Paul is, is leading them towards as well with justification through faith, and we'll see this later in the book of Galatians, is that we walk in step with the Spirit. We'll actually see that a lot today in our, in our text, is that when we're, when we're walking with the Spirit, it's, it's because we've been justified by faith, and we can, uh, we can live in freedom walking by the Spirit. So the video has, like, moms and dads, like, walking with their kids. It's kind of like the, the intro video. I don't know if you've noticed that. But I had another video I wanted to show you today. <laughs> um, this is parents who maybe, this is a dad. It's which one video. It's a dad who doesn't do such a good job of, like, helping his kid. I don't know if you've ever seen this viral video, uh, but it's a guy who's, yeah, you can go, I don't know if it's stuck, but if it's, it's fine. Um, it's a dad who's playing, uh, who's at a baseball game. Uh, is it stuck on like the three-second loop, Jake? That's all right if it is. Um, so there's a dad at a baseball game, and he has um, a cup of drink in one hand. I guess it's okay to say beer in church. I don't normally do it. <laughs> he has a beer in one hand, and he has his like little girl in the other hand like this. And oh yeah, there it is. Okay. And I don't know if you can see it, if the video is slowing too much, but there's a foul ball that heads straight to him. And he makes a decision. <laughs> he makes a decision in the moment to drop his girl <laughs> and catch the ball. <laughs> and it's pretty amazing. Like you can see on his face almost like disbelief that it actually happened. Like there's no way this played out in his mind or that he thought beforehand, if a foul ball comes at me, I'll let my girl go and I'll catch the ball <laughs> and I'll catch her again. Uh, but in that video, uh, there's like three or four faces that you can see that I think make it better. And uh, here's a couple of faces right here. Um, or one face. This is like a guy right behind him who's old enough to know better, and he's like angry at him. And you can see his face like change in the video to being like angry at him. And then there's these two bros that are like, oh yeah, dude. <laughs> like that was awesome. That was miraculous. And then you've got the girl who's like, what is happening in my life right now that my dad would drop me for a foul ball? Um, but I, I think about there's some parents who are like helping their kids walk, and there's some kids who are saving their beards in, in sacrifice of their kid. <laughs> but whatever's happening here with, with dads and parents, this baseball dad put everything on the line for that foul ball. I mean, really what that comes down to is that he, he put everything on the line for that foul ball. There was uh, no question that his priorities were off. <laughs> If we could go back and break that down, that dad did not have the right priorities in his life catching that foul ball. In the Christian life, 
right priorities make us put everything on the line for Christ, not the foul ball. And we're willing to drop everything to follow after Christ. Christ actually calls us to give up everything for him. Like the baseball dad willing to drop the kid and the beer, but more. We have to lose our lives completely. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says this. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever will save his life will lose it. It, it, There's nothing holding on there. You lose your life. In Galatians, this call to lose your life in Christ takes the stage. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, which is where we'll be today, the main idea is that a life surrendered to Jesus will be led by the Spirit and that a Spirit-led life is a life of righteousness. So we're going to put those two things together and say it like this. The Spirit leads us to righteousness. The Spirit leads us to righteousness. The Holy Spirit never leads us to sinfulness, but to righteousness and holiness. So to be in step with the Spirit is to pursue righteousness. The charge from false teachers in Galatia was that Paul and his followers were rejecting the law and living in sin. They're saying, you're claiming freedom for yourself, but what you're really doing is claiming sin for yourself in the name of Christ, and that's a problem. And that's a reasonable charge if Paul was rejecting the law. But Paul wasn't rejecting the law. Paul was honoring the law. It was the false teachers who dishonored the law. The false teachers held the law up as the justifier. They held the law up as the means of righteousness. But to honor the law is to honor the heart of the law. And the heart of the law is not to be the justifier nor the means of righteousness. The heart of the law is that Jesus is the justifier and that Jesus is the means of righteousness. What the law showed us is that we could not be obedient on our own. So then the heart of the law is that we need God to dwell in us, to work through us. The heart of the law is that obedience can only come through the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 27 says this. In this prophecy, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So even here, as, as we're learning about the process of redemption, where, where does walking in statutes and being careful to obey rules come from? It, it comes from the Spirit inside of them. It comes from the Spirit inside of us, the Holy Spirit inside of us. Our righteousness can only come through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's a crucial principle for us to understand the text of Galatians. So let's walk back to verse 15, actually, today. We're going to be spending most of our time in verses 17 to 21, but let's read verses 16 and 17 just to establish some context. Turn over with me, Galatians chapter 2. This is what it says in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, 
because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So remember, he's talking to Jews here. He's specifically referencing how Peter had been a hypocrite and gone his own way. Here we continue in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Can we pray for our time together? as we begin to walk through this text. God, I believe that we're gathered here for a purpose. I really believe that it's not an accident that people are here today to hear your word. I pray that your word would be sharp this morning. I pray that it would pierce this morning. I pray that it would draw us to you, that we would leave hurting for more of you, not to be torn down, God, but to be built up in you. God, we love you. We thank you for the way that you pursue us and love us and that you give us your word and that you give us your spirit so that encountering your word, we can know you more and love you more. I pray that would be true for us today. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. In verses 17 and 18, we start to see this idea that freedom is righteous. Remember the context here that freedom was being torn down as unrighteousness, as sin. So in verse 17, let's go back and look at verse 17 and 18. It says, but if our endeavor to be, in, to be justified in Christ, not, not in works, it's, it, he's juxtaposing those two things, in, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. This is definitely one of the verses that, like, when I'm reading my Bible on my own, I just kind of skim over, and it's easy to not try to understand the meaning. It's like, okay, that means something. Let's keep going. But what Paul is getting at, what God wants us to see here, is that freedom is righteous. Paul references our endeavor to be justified in Christ. That's how he starts it. In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, which I think is a, a neat way to think about our life in Christ our endeavor to be justified in Christ is tearing down dependence on the law for justification. That's the endeavor, that we don't want to depend on justification by the law. We want to depend on Christ alone. We want to be justified in Him. And, and that is an endeavor, to tear down that dependence. And that's true for everyone. I mean, here in Galatia, there weren't, these were both Gentiles and Jews. I mean, these were religious and not religious. So it's, it's true for everyone but it is especially true for those who have grown up religious in, in, I think, our context. That for so many, of us, so many of us who grew up in church and with faithful Christian parents, that a real tendency for us is to start hearing the rules and laws of our faith rather than the love of Christ in our faith. So how do we, how do we tear down the dependence on the law and instead endeavor to be justified in Christ? That endeavor is not something that we are ever just done with, but something we're always working towards. 
is sanctification, that more and more we love and recognize who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We want our only hope in life to be faith in the finished work of Christ. So the question then is, if in this endeavor, if in this endeavor of being justified in Christ, people think we are sinners because we're not following the rules that they have set up, does that make Jesus look bad? That's, that's the question he's asking here. He says, no. He says it plainly, yet enthusiastically, no. He doesn't want the believers in Galatia to be trapped into justification by works for the sake of the religious. He said, look, these Judaizers, the, the party of the circumcision, are trying to say, you must have the law to be saved. And we're saying, no, don't, don't let don't do stuff just to please the religious. Live to please Christ. Seventeen, Verse 17 in this text references verse 15. Look back at verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Some of that's tongue-in-cheek. He's, he's kind of saying, like, we know we're all sinners. That's actually what the next phrasing is, is that we know that we all need saving. But that word there for sinners, he's not saying that the Gentiles are sinners and the Jews are not. That, that we can see that in the context, that he's saying we're all sinners. He's saying it tongue-in-cheek. So he's using that same language here in verse 17. Paul is using the language of the Judaizers. Those false teachers who came in were saying, hey, you guys are sinners. You're embracing sin, and you're making it look like Christ is okay with your sin. That's what you're doing. And Paul's saying, no, the rules that you've built up in the Mosaic law are not the rules that Christ has called us to follow now. So he's saying, you're building up fake rules. So Paul is using their language, calling the Gentiles sinners. They can only think of the Gentiles as sinners, needing the works of the law to be made righteous. But Paul isn't calling the Gentiles sinners. He's condescending to the false teachers. He's like, look, if this is what you want to say, then let's say it. He does the same thing here in verse 17. If we're found to be sinners, a version that's a really good version is the CSB. I use the ESV on Sunday mornings. Another really good version is the CSB. It actually has quotation marks around sinners so as to make sure that that's understood is that he's saying, look, even if we're found to be sinners, right, you can understand it when I say it that way. It's like, look, if I'm adopting your language and you think of us that way, even if we're found to be sinners in your mind, like these Gentiles who don't follow Mosaic law, like the circumcision group would say, they're saying, you're making Christ a servant of sin. You're abusing grace. You're sinning all you want because you think Jesus just turns the other way now because of grace. But Paul obviously and openly rejects that cheap grace mindset. He's not embracing what they're accusing him of. And he makes it very clear. Romans 6 is a really great text to parallel this text. And in Romans 6 and verse 1, Paul, Paul says this. He's the same writer. It's God's word. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Enthusiastic, plainly. We're not to continue sinning so grace may abound. L look down just a few more verses later. Romans six fifteen. He says, what then? <laughs> Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. So Paul is making it clear, like, hey, you guys are saying that we're sinners. We're not. In Romans, he's very clear. We, we don't believe that you can just sin and do whatever you want, and it's okay. It's covered by the blood. Don't worry about it. Keep sinning. It's fine. Jesus wants you to live your best life. Go get it. That's not what he's saying. 
Is Christ a servant to sin? Certainly not. Does Christ free us to sin? By no means. What Christ frees us to is righteousness. Christ frees us to righteousness. Therefore, Paul says in verse 18, if I were to start trying to justify myself before God by my works, then that would truly be sin. What would be sin for us would be to say, God, you need me to do work for you to save me. That's the real problem. That's the real sin. And it's ironic. The false teachers were saying, your freedom is sin, Gentiles. The fact that you don't do all the laws that we do means that you're in sin. In reality, their captivity to the law that had already been fulfilled was sin. If we have freedom in Christ, how can we put ourselves back into slavery to another master? That's the question Paul asks. How can we build back the idols that we tore down? How can we, how can we give to lesser things but only belongs to God? Now, this is significant because here the context is the law. And the law is not an idol on its own. The law sitting, being given to the people, it was not an idol. But the law was never meant to be the means of salvation either. The law was meant to serve God, not to do the work of God, not to do the work of salvation on his behalf. So when we take this good law and make it our hope for salvation, now we've made it an idol. So Paul is saying, I cannot do to the law again what Christ has undone for me. I will not set the law back up on the pedestal that only Christ can have in my heart. If we were to set the law in the place of Christ, that would be true sin. And it wasn't the Gentiles coming to Christ in faith, living in his righteousness that were the transgressors. You see that in verse 18? You see how Paul changes the vocabulary there? It's not sinners here, it's transgressors. Who are the ones who are truly dishonoring Christ with their actions? Who are the ones who are truly sinning against each other? The transgressors of verse 18 are serving a master other than Christ. They were serving the law. They were serving themselves. Keep reading with me in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a Christian, you are dead to sin and you are alive by faith. If you're a Christian, you are dead to sin and you are alive by faith. Through the law, I died to the law. I want you to get this image of verse 19 of a big fish getting swallowed by an even bigger fish. <laughs> Through the law, I died to the law. This law that entraps us and condemns us, 
this law that the Judaizers, the false teachers, were, were placing over these free in Christ Christians, this law that entraps us and condemns us, we die to this law through the law. And you're like, well, that seems not how. Like what? You're using the same word trice. How do we do that? Well, Paul is referencing the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We're going to see that in just a couple of seconds in Romans 8. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This law of love and life fulfills the law of Moses. It satisfies it. It swallows it up. Not to abolish it. The law still exists. It still exposes. It's still good. But it's been fulfilled by Christ. So He's not abolishing the law, but he's saying those who live by the law of the Spirit no longer have to live by the law of Moses. It is satisfied. Romans 8 says it like this. This is Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't you love reading that verse? Can we just read it again together just so we can read it again? Because it's just good. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Do you see the, the big fish being swallowed by a bigger fish? The law of the spirit of life has set you free. Through the law, I have died to the law. The law of works no longer stands in condemnation over us Christians because we are dead to that law. It's a big statement. For us who have lived under the weight and burden and shame and guilt of the law, we are dead to that law because we are dead to sin. We're not dead so we can sin all we want. We're dead to that law because we're dead to sin. Those two things have to go together. We are only able to be dead to that law because we are dead to sin because we live to God. We live by faith to God. We died to the law so that we could live to God. We're not looking over our shoulder anymore for the guilt and shame and waiting for our conscience, uh, consequences. We're not looking like a scared child wondering when, or, when is the other foot going to come down, the other shoe going to drop. Instead, instead, we get to live in freedom. We live in forgiveness of our sin. And we live in joy and righteousness. The righteousness of the Christian life comes through our walk with Christ. That when we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we want what He wants, we enjoy what He enjoys, and we go where He leads. So for us, we're free from the law because we are now in Christ. But I believe that we have many Christians living in condemnation now. I think that's true. I mean, we can look around. We can, even from our experience, our own experience, identify how at times we live in condemnation. We, we put condemnation over us, and yet we claim to be in Christ. Listen to God's word. This isn't me. I'm not saying this. Listen to God's word. For those in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. 
Now, does this mean you will never be condemned? Uh, No, you will be. Peter stood condemned just a few verses earlier, right? Condemnation happens, but you will not live in that condemnation. There's a pretty significant difference there. Yet we feel the weight of our sin. We feel the guilt of our sin. We, We feel the shame of our sin. But do we live in those things? By no means. We live in the freedom that Christ gives. You will not live in that condemnation. Instead, we're, we're able to repent out of a desire to fellowship with Jesus. And if you repent of your sin, true biblical repentance doesn't allow you to stay in your guilt and shame. We can't stay in guilt and shame when we're turning towards Christ, loving Him. Our eye, it changes the focus of our eyes. Yeah, shame for a moment, but then focus is on our rescuer. We don't have to dwell in our sin. We dwell on Christ. Your sin doesn't reign over you, Christian. Jesus does. I think a truth that has hit me recently that maybe will help you and is somewhat connected to this is that Jesus doesn't enjoy your guilt. God doesn't enjoy your guilt. Do you know who enjoys your guilt and your shame? The enemy. Do you know what living a life full of guilt and shame, do you know who that pleases? The enemy. A life of joy because we're able to reject our sin and follow after Christ and admit our sin because we have a loving Father who loves to correct us and put us back on the right path, who we're grateful for correction. We love to go and admit our sin because we want His help. He's the one waiting for you. You don't have to worry about admitting your sin. You don't have to worry about repentance. But in repentance, we get to enjoy Jesus. Jesus enjoys your joy. So pass away that guilt and shame. Leave it behind. Experience it for the moment, and then repent. Turn from your sin. So Paul can say that he has been crucified with Christ, and he can say that and rejoice. He's saying, it's good that I took Jesus' death, because in taking his death, I also took his life. I also take on his life. Right? The, the death is sad. The death hurts. There's humiliation. There's, there's shame. We don't stay in death. We move to life. We embrace the new life. We're a new creation. We're newborn. We're born again. Do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You can live on that one all week. (laughs) If you're worried about getting fed at church, there you go. There's the feeding. It's the word. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Imagine the glory of the stone being rolled away in front of the tomb, and imagine that your life has experienced the same glory of sin dying and Christ living. That you have new life in Christ that you get to experience fully because the Spirit dwells in you. The joy of the Christian life. I think I might say it every week while we're in Galatians. It's so good for us that we have new life in Christ. We have this new life, and it it means that it's not the old Mark Navy that lives. I I became a Christian when I was like six. So the old Mark Navy only had a few years. Praise God. I don't know your story. I don't know how, how many years the old you got, Christian. But that old you is done. That old you is put away. Now, now like, like Paul, here in, in verse 18, in 17, now you're, you're a part of the endeavor to embrace the fullness of Christ, to be filled with all the fullness of God. It's not I who live. I died to my sinful, natural desires and passions. I died to my old ways and my old masters. I died to my need for pride and my need for uh, sinful sexual fulfillment. I died to my, um, my anger. I died to my selfishness. You're like, Mark, but... You don't fall there anymore? No, that's not what this is saying. This isn't saying that sin doesn't exist. We're going to see in the text. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to see we're still in this life. But we died to the old ways. I think, I think it's like being our, our death, our sin. I think our sin is like being in debt to a mobster. And you can't pay your debt. Like you've, have you seen some of these movies or at least you know, like they're, they're going to whack you. That's what, that's what happens. But we got whacked. <laughs> like we couldn't pay our debt. It wasn't possible for us. We died to sin. The good news, though, for us is that we get to choose this death because we realized that the old life was no good. We didn't want to run hiding in fear of the old life. We wanted to run and embrace this new life in Christ in order to escape our debtor, and not just for the sake of escaping our debtor, but for embracing a new master. We say, yes, Jesus, we want you. We, have, we want this new life. We want this good master, this master who loves us. The text here, if you look at it, it says, he loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. That is for you. If I could look every one of you in the eyes right now with, that is for you. He loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. Jesus loves you personally. Take note of that. 
Jesus loves you personally. Yes, he loves his church, and he redeemed for himself a people, but he redeemed for himself a people of people. (laughs) You, Jesus loves you individually. You're not just a drop in the ocean. You are uniquely you and specially known. You aren't lost in the mess and the fray. You aren't insignificant. You matter. Isn't that a beautiful truth from that text? How, How God feels about you? We need to be reminded of that every once in a while. As we struggle with our sin and and our shame and how I could live up to the standards of God, He loves you. How could you love me, little me? He tells us He does. It's who He is. He is loving. He is generous. He couldn't be more clear about His desire for you than He is in verse 20. Jesus wants you crucified with Him. Notice that. He, he wants to share that with you. He wants to share that suffering with you. And that doesn't sound good, but think about the people you're closest to in your life. Is it the people that you've suffered with? Jesus wants to be with you. He, he wants your life to be so wrapped up in him that it is truly Christ who lives in you. Look at that in verse 20. He doesn't want people to, to know you apart from him. I hope that's true of how people think of me and my wife. We're so close that you think of us together. But more than that, I hope when you think of me, you think of me and Christ together. Because we are so close. Look at verse 20. He wants the life you live to be lived, how? By His strength. He wants the life you live to be lived by His strength. So you're living by His favor all the time. Isn't it hard to ask people for favors? Don't you hate to be in debt to someone? Jesus is like, please, live by my strength all the time. Never don't ask me for favors. I want you dependent on me. This type of intimacy and depth is what we live for. You can see it in culture easily because we often find it or the closest thing that looks like it in sexual love, don't we? In romance. That's the closest thing to this that we can find. And look how it's idolized everywhere, isn't it? And yet here, God is saying he wants us, he wants to be known with us, he wants to be known through us. We were designed for this. But we are still in the flesh. We still fall to sin. Even though it's no longer our master, even though it's no longer our master, it still flares up. It still pulls at us and reaches for us. We still live in a world full of sin. So how do we stand up to sin in this new life? What's the call to action here? How do we stand up to sin in this new life? By faith in the Son of God. We stand up by faith in the Son of God. So really, our standing is just weakness. We stand up to sin by saying, hey, here's Jesus. We hold him up. We live in his power and our certainty that he will eventually and finally deliver us from sin. Romans 6, 9 through 11. I should have just told you to keep a finger in Romans 6. Such a good parallel. Romans 6, 9 through 11 says this. We know that Christ is being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
death no longer has dominion over him. This is verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Whose righteousness do we depend on? Whose goodness do we depend on? Who led the way? Who leads the way? It's all about Jesus. So how can we be certain of Romans 6, 9 through 11? How can we have faith in this? Because of who God is. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. He proves himself that way. We trust him because of who he is and how he always acts towards us. And we just saw in verse 20 that he is loving and generous. He loves you and gave himself for you. He is loving and generous. That's who he is, and he does not lie, and he does not go back on his word, and he does not change. He is loving and he is generous, and he is always acting in love and generosity. Do you think of God that way? God is always acting in love and generosity. We know this is true because of his history. Flip, read your Bible, flip through the pages of the Bible, read it. This is who he is. He's, he's proven himself this way. The gospel is clear evidence of this truth. He loved us and gave himself for us. And I bet it's been true in your life too, Christian. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's the thing. Christ died for a purpose. <laughs> Christ died for a purpose. Even though we don't abuse grace, here Paul is saying, we also don't nullify it either. Yet we live in righteousness. Yet we pursue Christ. We reject sin. We're not beholden to the law. But we're also not creating a new rules-based, works-based, this is how to get to heaven. We're not nullifying grace by saying righteousness is important. Our righteousness can't exist without grace because it comes from Christ. Both grace and righteousness for us come from Christ. So if righteousness came from the law, we don't need Christ. That's the message here. If righteousness came from the law, we don't need Jesus. We can do it without him. Christ died for no purpose. But if righteousness is imputed to us, if righteousness is given to us from Christ, then we can't do it without him. So he died for a purpose. So we thank God for his grace because it's by grace that Christ gives to us his righteousness. His death wasn't worthless. It was so valuable. His death and his resurrection was the most valuable thing through all of history. It was for a purpose. And that purpose was our redemption. Whenever we let false teachers place additional rules on salvation, they're essentially calling Christ's death worthless. They're saying that it wasn't enough and that other means were needed. But here's the thing. The law was never intended to bring salvation. 
It was only ever intended to show our great need for a Savior and guide us to righteous living. Even before Jesus came as a baby in the manger, it was never the law and never law following that saved anyone. It was always faith. It's always been faith. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Abraham, Moses, Samson, they were all saved by their faith in a coming Savior. Don't be confused as you read the Old Testament. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. There is one God, and He has always chosen to redeem His people by faith. It was never the law that led them to righteousness. It was always faith, and that is true for us today. And now we, we have a greater gift than, than those in the Old Testament had. We have the gift of the Spirit. Now the Spirit who dwells in us by grace through faith leads us to righteousness. So we're not checkmarking every Mosaic law. We're not checking over our back to see if we're about to get smited or dropped into a pit because the Spirit who lives in us leads us to righteousness and cares for us. The Spirit leads us to righteousness so we can live in freedom in Christ because it is only through faith in Christ that we can have the Spirit in us. If you're here and you're wondering if you're a Christian, if you think you might be but you're not sure, here's how you can know. Ask yourself, where would you say salvation is found? How can someone be saved? Trust Jesus alone for your salvation. How, how do you receive help for your problem with sin? Trust Jesus alone for your salvation. If you believe that he died for your sins and rose again, you can be saved. It's really simple. Now, we see that that salvation brings us into a life of righteousness, which sometimes can be complex. But the message of the gospel is not difficult to grasp. We have sin. The law written inside of us teaches us that. You don't have to know Moses' law to know that you're a sinner. And we know that sin deserves consequence. We know bad things deserve consequence. But Jesus died. He took your consequence. He settled your debt. He paid the mobster back so that you could be with him forever. Maybe you're a Christian and you've been living in the condemnation of the law. Today is the day to repent and embrace the forgiveness of a Savior who was condemned on your behalf so that you could have life in Him. So before we enter into a time of taking communion together, I want to pray with, with you. And as we pray, consider that as we are about to take communion and Jim Corth, one of our elders, leads us in that. Consider that it is only by the blood of Jesus, it is only by his body laid down for us that we could be saved and enjoy his freedom. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that our actions and our desires deserve death. God, you created us to be with you, and in our ignorance and in our pride, we shunned you and chose our own way. 
God, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for coming while we were still sinners, truly sinners, no air quotes. God, we were the transgressors. We did what was wrong. You saw us in all of it, and you said, I love you. God, pray for that person here today who doesn't know you, who hasn't been saved by your, your blood through your grace. I pray that in this time you would draw their heart to you. I pray that you would show them the beauty of your grace, the beauty of your love, that they would deal with their sin now and recognize there's nothing they can do to solve their sin problem except what has been done by you for them. I pray that they would receive it in faith. God, thank you for your love for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.